name is Jimmy. I'm an alcoholic. My sobriety date's May the 8th, 1971. And I'm nervous. <laughs> 25 years ago, a man told me, first time I talked, a man told me, he said, the more you do it, the easier it gets. I believe he lied. <laughs> I wanted to explain. I, I know the fact that I'm up here. I'm real nervous. I, I know that really doesn't have anything to do with why I'm here. But I, I wanted to let you know something about that. I, I, when, when I get nervous, I, I, I stutter. Uh, uh, back when I was young, I, I, I stuttered a lot. I've outgrown most of it. But when I get nervous, I stutter. And, 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 and there's a story about that. And I heard this story. I, I'm going to tell that to you here there was these two guys walking down the road one of them stuttered pretty bad and he says wow wow, wow. Did, 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 did you see that another guy says no what and he says a good looking blonde he said no i didn't see that they walk on a little further and he says wow wow did, 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 did you see that he says no what he said, a good-looking redhead. He said, no, I didn't see that. A little later, the guy says, did, did, did you see that? And the guy's getting a little irritated. He said, yeah, I saw that. He says, well, why did you step in it then? <laughs> so if I start to stutter, listen, because that may be the only important thing I say all night. <laughs> I love the laughter. You know, uh, I really enjoy conferences and conventions. I, I was lucky when I first got sober. I got involved with people that went to conventions, and they started taking me to conventions when I was brand new, and, and, and I've been coming back ever since. I, I love conferences and conventions. I remember I, I hadn't been sober very long, and, and I was in a convention in Miami, and the speaker said, if you came here to learn how to get sober, you're in the wrong place. That sort of got my attention, because I thought that was the reason I was there. But he went on to say, you get sober in your home group with your sponsor. You come to these conferences to celebrate that sobriety. And, and, and that's why I'm here, to celebrate my sobriety. Uh, I, I was a skid row drunk, <clears throat> but I didn't start off on skid row, uh, and I'm talking about the physical skid row. I, I'm talking about, you know, that we, the kind of skid row where you sleep under bridges and stay in missions and salvation armies and drank wine out of a brown bag in an alley. That was the kind of drunk I was there at the end. I didn't start out that way. I want to give you all just a little bit of a drunken log. My first sponsor told me it was important that I always remember where I came from. He said, if you're not careful, you'll begin to think about how much fun you had drinking. <laughs> and I did. I had a lot of fun drinking when I first started. But he said, if you're not careful, you'll just remember the good parts and forget the bad parts, and you might be back doing it again. So so when I talk, I, I, I tell you a little bit about my drinking, because it did get pretty bad. It, it Not any worse than any, a lot of you, but but it was bad enough for me. See, I've found out since I've been in the program, Skid Row can be in a $200,000 home living on the river. You know, Skid Row's in your mind. When you get enough, it's enough. And it doesn't really matter where you are, but when you get to that point, it's enough. And you need to do something about it. 
I started off in life, I, I grew up in uh, North Georgia, up right at the edge of the mountains, way out in the country, small town, <clears throat> came up in a good family, you know. I have, uh, since I've been in AA, I found out that I was raised in the worst place you could raise a child. That's a good Christian home. I mean, we all wind up in AA. <laughs> But I did. I came up. I came up. I had good parents, and and uh, uh, there was a lot of love in my family. I s- assumed there was a lot of love there. We were ten kids. <laughs> but I did. I, I, you know, I can't blame any of my drinking or any of my actions on my family and the way I was raised because I've got nine brothers and sisters or I had nine brothers and sisters and and none of them were like me you know coming up as a kid I always felt different I always felt out of place I never felt like I fit I never felt like I was good enough and you know there was i guess i was a lot like a lot of other alcoholics since i've you know since i've been around this program i found that a lot of us are that way a lot of us are insecure we have different ways of showing it you know you can be around and see somebody come in and and they make a lot of noise they're out in the middle of the floor they're telling jokes and and, and they're having a good time and and they do that because they're insecure and then somebody else is sitting over here in the corner not saying a word. And they do that because they're insecure. I think we are all insecure. I know that I was. And growing up, I felt insecure. <clears throat> when I was 15, I found the answer to that problem. And I'm sure you all know what it was. I found alcohol when I was 15 years old. And I don't know... But I feel like if there is such a thing as an alcoholic from the word go, I was it. The first time I drank, and I remember the first time I drank. The first time I drank, there was three of us guys bought a six-pack, and we were going to split it. I drank three and a half of those beers. (laughs) And that was the way I drank for the 17 years that I drank. I drank all I could get when I could get it. I didn't stay drunk all the time, and uh, but I drank all the time. Or every time, every chance I got. I mean, you know, I got sent home from high school for drinking. <clears throat> so my drinking was bad even when I was in my late teens. I got in trouble a lot. It seemed like when I drank, I, I, I could not control my actions. And, and I stayed in trouble all the time. And I'm not talking about criminal charges. I was just a drunk. I was, I'm talking about drunk driving, drunken fighting, and drunken disorder, and drunken walking down the street. If they could put drunk in front of it, they locked me up for it at one time or other. And, and I never intended to do anything wrong. You know, my intentions were to go out and have a few drinks and relax and have a good time. That was always the way it started. But it never worked out that way. Weird things happened to me. Weird things happened to me. I remember one night I was out drinking and almost got ran over by an automobile. Now, that by itself is not too different. What made it weird was I was driving the car that almost ran over. (laughs) I fell out of the damn thing. 
<laughs> and and you know why? You know, you know I heard a story one time about uh, <clears throat> an old wino said he was in a flea bag hotel and he set the bed on fire. And of course they came and they chopped the door down and they drug him out in the hall to put the bed out. And he woke up and saw all those uniforms and uh, he knew he was in trouble. He said, you can't blame me. That damn thing was on fire when I got in it. <laughs> that was me. Yeah. That was the way, and I'll tell you a true story. I was, I, I was one night about midnight, I was changing bars down in, and down, I was drinking in Georgia at that time, and the sit, inside the city limits, they closed at 12, and out in the county, they closed at 2, so I was left the bar in the city, and I'm going to the county, and the police stopped me. I stopped for a traffic light, and they pulled up behind me and turned their lights on. I jumped in the back seat and told them I wasn't driving. And I was the only one in the car. So those kind of things kept me in trouble with my drink. Now, I tried to be normal. I tried to be like everybody else. You know, I tried to be like my family and my brothers and sisters. I got married. I had this thing laid out, you know, uh, back when I, where I grew up, the, the family I grew up in, it was sort of customary. The, the parents raised you till you got old enough to work, then you went to work and, and, and you sort of helped out at home until you got married and left home, you know. And, and so I was still 23 years old, still living at home and paying board to my parents. But when you, my, neither one of my parents drank, so I couldn't drink at home. So I left home. I know a lot of women do this, but I left home to get away from my parents, you know, so I could drink. And I, I figured, you know, I'll get married and I'll have a, my own home and I'll be able to come home and, and just sit down and relax and watch television and drink a couple of beers because I'm going to be the boss. Undoubtedly, I didn't explain that to my wife. <laughs> <laughs> but, but of course, it never worked out the way, exactly the way I had it planned. But, but really, I tried. I tried to be normal. I tried to be normal. I, I, I worked. You know, it was sort of inbred. My family had taught me you have to work, and so I, I worked uh, on a regular basis. And 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 I went to the liquor store and I cashed my check. I had my wife convinced that that was the only place you could get the company check cash was at the liquor store and 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 I used to get, drink up do my check before I'd get home a lot of days you know I'd get paid on Friday nights and sometimes it was Sunday morning before I got home because once I began to drink I, I, I had no control over it <clears throat> my life continually got worse my drinking continually got worse uh, pretty soon I couldn't pay all the bills. I worked and made good money. I worked for General Motors at that time. In fact, I worked for General Motors for about nine years, I think. I said this one time and old Howard Taylor, he, he, he laughed about it. I, I, as my drinking progressed, my job sort of graduated down. Yeah. Started off at General Motors and I went to Ford. <laughs> and then I went to a paper mill. 
See, I didn't really mean it that way. <laughs> but I did. I started off with General Motors in about nine years, and I moved over, went worked for Ford for a while, and then I worked in a paper mill for a while, and and then I wound up as the night manager of a service station out on the interstate. I was the night manager. Hell, I was the only one that worked at night. <laughs> but as I say, my, my drinking continued to get worse. And, and I came home from that service station job one morning, about 7.30 in the morning, and my wife was gone. Her and the kids had loaded up and left. <clears throat> she left me a note. She's never coming back. I didn't believe it. She'd left a dozen times, and she would always show up in a couple of weeks, you know. So I figured, well, I'll drink for a week or two, and she won't be in my hair, and she'll be back. And, and that was in 1968, and I have not seen that woman since. <laughs> I'm beginning to think she was serious. <laughs> But once she was gone, once she was gone, see, I, you know, I could do what I wanted to. You know, there had been some restriction on my life all the way up to that point. My parents, you know, I didn't, couldn't drink at home. My parents didn't drink, so they controlled me or that part a little. And then after we got married, after I got married, you know, I, I, like I say, it was sort of inbred that you work and, and take care of your family, and, and I tried my best to do that, so I always worked on a regular I didn't do a very good job taking care of the family, but I always worked on a regular basis. <clears throat> but now that she was gone and I didn't have any obligations and I could do what I wanted to do, I found that the only thing that I wanted to do was drink. And, and, and that's all I did for the next three years, is drink. Uh, uh, when she left, uh, we had uh, accumulated. She had helped me back, you know, <laughs> but we had accumulated a little. I had some real estate and uh, had some rental property, and, and I realized that I don't, you know, single man doesn't need all this, so I sold a little of it and uh, had a lot of money. All of a sudden, I had a lot of friends, and, and you know, and so that I drank, and, and, and that money got gone. And, 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 and I realized that, you know, a single man doesn't even uh, need one house, you know. So, so I sold that house. And I got a bunch of money that time. And I had more friends. And, and, and we drank. And, and we partied. And, and, and uh, I moved in a rental house and I didn't pay the rent. And it wasn't because I didn't have the money. I just didn't have time to go. <laughs> And you know, I'm gonna tell you something. It's embarrassing to have your furniture sold on the courthouse steps in your hometown. <laughs> but that's what they did, you know, because all I did was drink. All I did was drink because that was, you know, there was nobody to tell me I could. You know, I was 27, 28 years old at this time, and and I was a man, and nobody could tell me what to do, and and and, and I could drink, and that's what I did, and and and. I drank, uh, the house was gone, the property was gone, I had a boat, and I had a little accident with it, and it caught on fire and burned up. <clears throat> and like I say, they, they sold my furniture in front of the courthouse, and 
Then I got in jail for DUI, and they took my driver's license away from me. And when I got out, I found out it didn't matter because they had repossessed my car while I was in jail. <laughs> and, and this is about the time that my life started going downhill. <laughs> from then on, from then on, it got worse. <clears throat> but you know, I, you know, I was I was drinking in this bar one night, and and I'm in my hometown. And I had gotten to the point, and I don't know if any of you have ever been this way or not, but I'd gotten to the point when I would walk down the street and see somebody that I had known all my life. I didn't want to face them. You know, I would cross the street at times to keep from running into people that I had graduated from high school with because I didn't want to face them. I don't know how I looked on the outside, but I know how I felt on the inside. And I didn't want to face those people. I was drinking in a bar one night. The old guy that swept up and cleaned up the bar afterwards, after uh, the closing time, we were sitting and talking, and he asked me where I lived. And I told him I didn't have a place to live because at that time I was just living anywhere I could find a place. He said, would you like to go home and spend a night with me? And I said, yeah. I said, have you got enough room? And he said, I've got a two-bedroom apartment out back. And there was a bunch of apartment, there was an apartment complex back there, and I thought, man, this is great. He, he bought a six pack, six pack of beer, and he was going to take me home and let me spend the night with him. And we went around the bar and got around there in the back. There was a garage out there, and out behind the garage there was a 56 Plymouth sitting on concrete blocks. And he said, you can have the front bedroom, and I'll sleep in the back. <laughs> Actually, it was... It was pretty nice. It was a four-door, and we had private entrances to our living <laughs> Now, y'all laugh. But see, I was at a point that, that that was pretty good for me. I had a place that I could sleep. Now, at this time, I was probably living in that little old car. I was about five miles from my mother's home. But I was ashamed to go home because the way I was living and the way I was drinking and, and my whole life was contrary to the way I had been raised. You know, I hadn't been taught to live like that. And I didn't know what was wrong with me. I didn't know what was wrong. I, I just knew that I had to drink to live. A guy came along and he said, uh, Jimmy, let's leave town. Well, I had figured out that the Cobb County Police was my major problem. So if I left town, I'd get away from the police. I have no idea at this time where we thought we were going. But we were going somewhere. It was going to be better. And I spent the next three years touring this country trying to find a place that was going to be better. When I first got sober, I counted up that I had been in 30 states in those three years. Some of them I had just passed through. But I had been drunk in all of them, and I had been jailed in most of them. Because for the next three years, that's all I did was drink. We left we left Cobb County and went to New Orleans. And I don't know if any of you all have ever drank in New Orleans, but that's the place to drink if you're an alcoholic. Nobody ever says you drank too much down there, <clears throat> unless you're drinking out of their bottle, right? <laughs> 
But we went to New Orleans and got drunk and left there and went to Houston and got drunk and left there and went to Dallas and got drunk and went on from Oklahoma City and got drunk. And and then but this time my drinking was really getting bad. I, I, I was just totally out of control, did not know what to do. I had some serious problems there in, in Oklahoma City, and I, I don't really like to talk about it, but I just briefly mentioned I almost killed a man there. And and I didn't know whether he was going to live or not, but I knew one thing. I wasn't going to stay around to find out. So I went on to California. He went to the hospital, and, and for one year, I was terrified that I was going to the penitentiary because I didn't know where that man had lived or not. And then a year later, I walked in a bar in Dallas, Texas, and there he sat. Man, I was glad to see that guy. <laughs> I went over and I was going to hug his neck, and he got up and took a swing at me. <laughs> he was still mad. <clears throat> but I could, I could stand up here for two hours and talk about those three years. But if you're an alcoholic, you know what they were like. Yeah. I was always going somewhere that it was going to be all right. You know, I went to California. I went to Oregon. went to Texas. went to Nebraska. went to Iowa, Arkansas. You know, I would tell myself when I get there, it, everything will be all right. But the problem was I always got there at the same time I got there, and I was the problem. See, and, and I didn't know that. I kept thinking, you know, pretty soon I'll get a job and I'll make enough money so everything will be all right. Pretty soon I'll I'll get this all together, you know. Pretty soon I'm going to be able to just sit back and have a couple of beers. See, that was the only thing I wanted, just to be able to drink a couple of drinks and relax. But it never worked that way. So as I say, I could spend a couple of hours talking about those three years, but y'all, I'm sure that you, you know what I'm talking about, and, and I got down pretty low. I got down to the point that, that I slept under houses, and I slept under bridges, and, and I stayed in Salvation Armies. I rode freights all over the United States. Out in California, they introduced me to riding freights, and you don't have to clean up to ride a freight. You know, get a jug of wine and jug of water and get on and go anywhere you want to go. Sometimes you go places you don't want to go. You know, I've been to a lot of places I didn't want to be. But for the next three years, that's what I did. And during that three years, I had a couple of narrow escapes from AA. You know? (laughs) I was in Omaha, Nebraska, in a lockup. I think I was either doing a 30 or 60 day sentence for plain drunk and they came around and said they're having an AA meeting in the cafeteria. And if you go in there, they'll give you a sack of smoking tobacco. So I went to my first AA meeting to get something to smoke. Yeah, we'll forget it. They gave us coffee and donuts, didn't give us anything to smoke and I left and said, I ain't going back. It don't work. <laughs> I didn't get what I wanted. But I went to several AA meetings around the country that way. Uh, I'd be in jail somewhere, and, and uh, uh, you know, they would announce they would have an AA meeting. And, and uh, I didn't go to those meetings because I thought I had a problem. I went to those meetings to get out of the cell. I went to those meetings for some bribe. I remember one time in the House of D in New Orleans, they said, if, if you go to the AA meeting, they'll give you a card. You can stay in the mission for three days. 
Well, I went to an AA meeting so I'd have a place to sleep when I got out of jail. I mean, that made sense to me. You know, but I had some experience with AA, or at least I had some idea of what AA is. And I'm going to say this. I always say this. Uh, I go in prisons now as a volunteer, and I've been going in prisons ever since I was three months sober as a volunteer. And, and one of the reasons I do that is because of those people that came in those prisons when I was in there. You know, I didn't get sober when those guys came in, but at least I had heard of AA, and at least I had some idea what there was that there was a program like this. And when it came time for me to get sober, see, I knew where to go. <coughs> but I had several coincidences happen, you know, how those coincidences happen. I, I was drinking in New Orleans with uh, <coughs> these guys and, and uh, my drinking buddies. <laughs> and I don't know about y'all, but anybody that had a bottle was my buddy. And, and you know, and, and uh, I went to legal aid. I'm bumming, you know, I, I, I'm a skid row bum, and, and I went to legal aid trying to con somebody out of something, and I didn't get anything, but the lady says, have you ever been to, a you ever think about going to AA? And I said, yes, ma'am, I've been to AA. She said, well, you know, it might be a good idea. She said, those people might be able to help you. She didn't know anything about AA. Because she told me that if I'd go to AA, that y'all would help me get some clothes, and y'all would help me get a job, and y'all would help me get psychiatric help. I'm still waiting. (laughs) But here again, you know, AA was on my mind because she had talked about it, and I was drinking with another guy. And he went into DTs. We were sleeping in a cab of a pickup around behind the labor service in an alley there in New Orleans. And and, and he went into hallucinations sometimes 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. And I was afraid he was going to die and they was going to blame me, you know. I said, buddy, you need to go to AA. (laughs) And the next morning, I carried him down to the French quarters. They had an ARC down the French quarters. And I carried this guy down there. And I'm as bad a shape. I mean, I'm sleeping in the same trunk, drinking, drinking the same wine as he is, staying in the missions. But he needed that. Hey, I wasn't quite that bad because I wasn't hallucinating. <laughs> and then I was drinking with another fellow there, and and uh, and, and I, these are just people that I ran into because I don't remember any of them's name. But here is a good example of how you never know when you're going to help somebody. Because I was drinking with this guy in New Orleans, and he began to tell me about AA. He had gotten sober in Jacksonville, Florida, and he had stayed sober for some period of months. He knew all about AA. He knew all about the service center. They had, back in those days, they, you know, they had a lot of treatment centers now, back in Back in the 70s, there, well, there wasn't a lot of treatment centers, and they had a little place there in Jacksonville where you could stay for five days, and it didn't cost anything. And he said, after you stay five days, they'll help you get into a halfway house, and you can stay two weeks in a halfway house that doesn't cost anything. 
Now, it sounded good for me because I didn't have anything, so I sure needed something that didn't cost anything. But he made it AA so attractive. Here is this guy's a drunk, drinking wine with me. But he made AA attractive enough that I went down to the Rampart Street, sold a pint of blood, bought me a fifth of wine, called a freight, and went to Jacksonville to join AA. And that's really the way it happened. I had in my mind, because I knew ARC was right down the street. I'd been sober in Dallas, Texas for a couple of months one time in AA. I knew AA was everywhere. But he made, whatever he said to me, made AA in Jacksonville attractive enough that I did. I rode a freight to Jacksonville, and I got into AA. When I got to Jacksonville, it's the same old story. I run into a drunk. Yeah, and he, he asked me where I was going, and I told him I was looking for the Salvation Army. And he said, it won't do any good. They're closed. Would you like to have a drink? <laughs> I said, well, yeah. So we started drinking there for three or four days, and, and, and I woke up in the back of a police car. <laughs> and the police were asking me all these hard questions. You know, like, what happened? <laughs> Hell, I didn't know. You know, y'all the police, y'all are supposed to know what happened. <laughs> but they asked me did I fall down or did somebody beat me up because I was all bloody and and I and I still to the day don't know what happened. But I I got scars up there to tell you something happened. But they took me to the hospital and they sewed my head up and I escaped. <laughs> you know. <laughs> They looked the other way, and I walked out. <laughs> but one of the policemen, and I, I don't know about this, and here again, you know, things happen. God works in mysterious ways. One of those policemen undoubtedly was in AA because the next morning in my shirt pocket was a business card, and it had 20 West 4th Street on it, and that's the address of this treatment place that I was telling you about. So I went to 20 West 4th Street there in Jacksonville, and it's an old house, and they've got 16 beds. And what it was originally years ago, it was started back in the 60s, and just AA members got together and got this old house, and and, and they took people there to help them get sober. And you could stay five days free of charge. And I went to that place, and I walked up on the steps, I'd been riding freights. I was dirty. I was standing there wearing everything I owned in the world. And I knocked on the door, and it was about 7.30, as I say, and, and this old guy come to the door, and he looked at me. He didn't even ask me what I wanted. <laughs> he said, come on in here, boy. <laughs> and they took took me back there and asked me, did, was I willing to go to any lengths to get sober? And I said, Yeah. They said, well, go in there and eat breakfast. And I said, I don't mean go quite that far. I, <laughs> I, I love to take the eat. <laughs> but I began to get sober, or at least try to get sober. I stayed my five days in that place, just like the man told me, and I, they helped me get into a halfway house. And I stayed two weeks, and they didn't charge me anything until I could go to work. And, and I finally, after about ten days, got to work, and I started paying rent there to that halfway house. And and, and I w- went to a meeting every night. You know, they told me that if I wanted to stay sober, I had to go to meetings. 
And I didn't have anything else to do, and I didn't want to sit around that halfway house, so I went to a meeting every night. But I was one of those people that you see occasionally. I came in, and I didn't say anything to anybody. And as soon as the meeting was over, I left. I went to a lot of meetings, but that was all I did. You know, they told me to work the steps. I read the steps. I agreed with the steps. And I thought that was a good way for y'all to live. And I would look at the ones that affected me. And there wasn't just two or three of them that applied to me at the time I came in. And there were some of them I was never going to do. <clears throat> but I went to AA and, 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 and I would go to the meetings and I would listen. And, and I didn't go to step meetings. I didn't go to step meetings back in the, the, those days in Jacksonville. They used to sit around in a circle and they'd go around and ask you which step you was working in. And, you said, and I was never working one, so I just didn't go to that meeting. <laughs> but I didn't do anything. I didn't have a sponsor. I don't think at that time I even had a big book. But I just went to meetings. I thought it was going to rub off on me. You know, I thought, you know, I'm going to get this thing under control. <clears throat> and then one Sunday morning I woke up and there was something wrong and I had no idea what was wrong. I know now what was wrong, but at that time I didn't know. I know now that I needed to talk to my sponsor, but I didn't have a sponsor. I needed to talk to someone. I had been without a drink for around five months or a little over, going to meetings every night, listening to what you people said, but not doing anything. And all of a sudden, that wasn't enough. And so I started making my rounds there in Jacksonville, and I went over to the clubs, and, and, and I went over to the halfway house, and I went here and there. And I finally went to the beach and bought a bottle. Because I needed a sponsor or someone that I was close enough to sit down and just talk to. I don't know what I wanted to talk about, but I needed someone to talk to, and I had cut myself off from you people. See, all my life I had kept up this facade. I'd kept up, kept people out, and I had kept people out in AA. So I needed somebody to talk to, and they wasn't there. And I went to the beach, and I bought a bottle. And, and anybody knows that, uh, you know, you can drink a pint on Sunday afternoon and still be able to work on Monday. That's what I figured. I'd go out there and buy me a pint, and I'll sit around, and I'll have a few drinks and watch television and just won't tell nobody. And then I'll go to work Monday, and everything will be all right. I woke up in Mobile, Alabama in jail. <laughs> See, it was the same thing. Nothing changed. I got out of jail, and I went to New Orleans. I passed out in Lafayette Park, and some guy come along and stole my watch. And I swear, I believe it was the same guy that stole my watch six months before. <laughs> and I really believe he's down there waiting on me. <laughs> if I go back and pass out in Lafayette Park, I bet you he'd get my watch again. I ain't going to try not to do that. But this time it was different. Because, see, I had been sober for just a short while. You know, when I first got to AA, if you had asked me, did I want to get sober, I could not have given you an honest answer. Because I had never been sober. How can you want something you've never had? I had never, since I had been 15 years old, I had never been sober. 
I mean, I had there had been some periods of time that I wasn't drinking, but there wasn't any periods that I was sober. Because even when I was drinking, my mind was drunk. I mean, even when I wasn't drinking, my mind was drunk. So I didn't know what it was like to be sober. But that five or five and a half months that I didn't drink there in Jacksonville really screwed me up. See, because I was living there down there in New Orleans in a flop house drinking wine again, and I knew there was a better way. See, up until that point, I didn't know there was any other way. But now I knew there was a better way, and it was pretty miserable. Yeah. I finally, after a few days, I don't know how long I was gone, a week, ten days maybe, I finally got back to Jacksonville. Luckily, I had some legitimate time that I could take off from work, so I didn't lose my job. I think I was gone about ten days. <coughs> but in that little apartment, I had a little apartment there, and I spent three days in that little apartment by myself, sobering up, tapering off. First time in my life I was ever successfully able to taper off. I tried it many times. I usually tapered back on. <laughs> but I sat there in that little apartment, and, and at the time that it was happening, I had no idea what was going on. But looking back on it, I know what happened. You know, looking back on it, I realized that I worked the first three steps sitting there in that apartment. Because for the first time in my life, I was able to get honest with myself. I was 32 years old at the time, and I don't think I'd ever been honest with myself. But I'd been around you people enough, and I had heard enough said, and I had learned enough about the program to know that honesty is the basic principle of this program. And, and I think that that was the first time in my life I'd ever gotten honest with myself. And I saw that I was totally powerless over alcohol. You know, I began to look at my life. I had drank for 17 years. And it was a pretty dark, dismal past. You know, I had failed at everything that I had ever done. The way it looked to me, I had failed and failed and failed and failed. I finally retired. I'm a retired failure. <laughs> you know, people every now and then people ask me what you do before you retire, and I tell them not much. <laughs> but really, you know, I really began to look at myself, and, and and I began to get honest with myself. And and you know what this program is about is humility. And one of the definitions that Webster gives for humility is to see yourself as you really are. And I began to see myself as I really was. I was a drunk. I could not control my actions once I began to drink. I was totally powerless over alcohol and my life was totally unmanageable. I had been raised in church, so I believed in God. But I just didn't believe God had a whole lot of use for me. But I had been around enough of these meetings enough to know that you people believed in something. And maybe if I tried that, and I remember praying the best I could and asking for help. And I haven't had a drink since. But when I came back to AA and I came back and I started over and got a chip, I did things a little differently. 
You know, I went to AA meetings, just like always, but I went to step meetings. I went to step meetings every Monday night, and, and, and they have, the way they do it down there, I guess, they, I don't know about up here, but down there, they, they have one person to go through the steps. It takes 12 weeks, and then they just keep doing that. And, and I sat through three different men, three different people, giving their version of how the steps had worked for them. And a little bit at a time, you know, it began to make a little sense. A little bit at a time, I began to see how it was possible for me to work these steps. I got a sponsor, something I'd never done before. And my sponsor knew everything. He was the damnedest fellow I ever seen in my life. <laughs> you know, he would be telling me all this stuff, and I never did believe him. I, 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 you know, this <laughs> He knew everything in the book. And he would tell me all this outlandish stuff that was in the book. And I didn't believe him. I'd go home and read the book, you know. And that was the reason I finally started reading the book, trying to prove my sponsor wrong. (laughs) But I got involved in service work. And I really believe that that is what's kept me sober. See, I, I think that's what this program is all about. One alcoholic helping another. Because there are so many times that only an alcoholic can help an alcoholic. There are a lot of people that try. But an alcoholic can help another alcoholic when none can, when nobody else can. I'd been sober about three months. <clears throat> like I say, I still go into prisons a lot. And I'd been sober about three months. And an old timer said, you, said, we was going to a meeting, said, you want to go? And I said, yeah. And I got in the car and didn't know where. And, you know, back in those days, we didn't have a lot of meetings there in Jacksonville. So we went out around to different communities to uh, support ag groups that were starting in some of the smaller communities. So I just assumed we were going down to one of the little towns that was trying to get a meeting started. But we didn't. We went to a prison. And I'd been sober three months, and, and and the guy that took me, he said, now, Jimmy, I want you to get up and say something. <laughs> I said, man, I don't know nothing to say. <laughs> he said, didn't you used to get in jail a lot? And I said, yeah. He said, since you've been in AA, haven't you been able to stay out of jail? And I said, yeah. He said, just get up and tell them that. And so I've been going back ever since. You know, I've been going in prisons for t- almost 27 years now. And that's about all I can tell them. I went on a 12-step call. I remember this when I was brand new. 12-step call came into the club, and my sponsor got me and said, Jimmy, let's go talk to this guy. So we went way off out in the country somewhere in a little house out there. And we was getting out of the car, and I told Jack, I said, Jack, I'm going to let you do the talking. Jack said, I'm not going to say a word. <laughs> I thought he meant for I was going to have to do the talking. He said, Jimmy, I don't know what to say to a drunk. He said, I always just ask God to give me the words. And said, so then I go in there and just say whatever I think I can or think I should. And, I, you know, and, and since that time, I, uh, I've always remembered that. See, when they said to surrender to prayer, I asked God to give me the words. That works sometimes. Sometimes God doesn't have anything to say and y'all stuck with me. 
But as I say, I, I, I did things differently. I, I got a sponsor and I worked the full step. And that was something that I thought I would never be able to do. But by talking to him, I found out that he'd done a lot of the things that I'd done. The things that I was so ashamed of, you know, were no big deal to him. And so a little bit at a time, I was able to do that. And a little bit at a time, I was able to get my life back together. I got involved in AA, and I love to be involved in AA. You know, and there's there there's one of the see, see I get stuttered, I get my I get tangled up, and I don't know exactly what I'm trying to say. But you know, when you have a, a conference like this, or a convention, or any kind of AA function, everybody comes enjoys themselves. But you know who enjoys it the most? The people that put it on, the committee, the people that did the work, the people that made all the arrangements, they are the people that enjoy this thing the most. Yeah. So next year, the next time they have one, if you want to enjoy it a little more, get on a committee. That's what they told me. They told me, get involved in AA. So I did. And I got involved in AA, and I did what they told me to do, and they told me to do a lot of things that I didn't want to do. They really did. But I found that when I do the things that I don't want to do, most of the time they're what I should have been doing. It didn't take me long to figure out that there are some things that I can do, and I feel good. And there's some things I can do, and they make me feel bad. I don't know about y'all, but my main purpose for being here is to make me feel good. So a little bit at a time, I quit doing those things that made me feel bad. And I started doing more of those things that made me feel good. I remember I remember one thing, you know, and I, and I was never nice to anybody. You know, I, you know, I used people. All my life, I manipulated and used people. And, and, and they told me, they said, be nice to people. Just, just walk up to somebody and, and, and say something nice to them. So I figured, well, I'll try it. And, and there was this little old lady that came in the, the club one day and she was getting some coffee and, and she was a real older, old lady and she had a lot of wrinkles. She had more wrinkles than me and that was a lot. But I walked over to her bed and I said, uh, I said, Betty, I sure am glad to see you. And she turned around and looked at me. She says, why? Well, I'm going to expect that. <laughs> I said, well, uh, uh, I said, well, you just brighten the room up. You know, I didn't lie to that lady because from that day on, every time I saw her, a big smile would come on her face and her eyes would light up. And she did brighten the room every time I saw her after that. And it was just little things like that that made me feel good. The things that I should have been doing all along. I began to live the way my parents had tried to teach me to live. You know, it's it's a shame to wake up one day and you're in your mid-thirties and find out your parents were right when you were six. (laughs) 
But that's right. You know, my parents had tried to teach me to treat people fairly. You know? Treat people fairly. And, and, and they might treat you fairly back. You know, be kind to somebody. And you get it back. They had tried to teach me that. But I had never lived that way. And once I began to do that, I began to feel better. And my life continued to get better. <clears throat> I stayed involved. I don't even know what time I started. What time am I supposed to quit? Whatever you finish. <sighs> right now. <laughs> I forgot where I was at now. Uh, but m- my life did get better. Everything that uh, y'all people promised me came true. Everything y'all told me came true. I, you know, I, when, when I got sober, uh, even though I had worked a lot of jobs and I knew a lot of jobs, there wasn't any automobile plants in Jacksonville, so I couldn't go back to an automobile plant. That's what I probably knew more than anything else. <clears throat> so I had to get a job, and the first job I got, I was making a dollar sixty cents an hour. That was uh, that was uh, uh, the pay back then. Uh, and I realized, you know, you know, I'm not going to ever amount to anything at a dollar sixty cents an hour. So y'all people told me that today was the first day of the rest of my life, and I could do anything, and I could make anything out of it that I wanted to. So I got to thinking about what would I like to do, and I I went back to uh, F uh, Florida Junior College to their vocational department. I had worked with automobiles all my life, and I. I went over there and I took a course in paint and body repair. And, and in 1970, uh, yeah, 1973, I opened a paint and body shop. And I love what I did, so I was successful at it. You know, I became the AA body man. You know how everybody's got names. <laughs> everybody's got names around here. And, uh, but I became the AA body man. Anybody in AA had a wreck, they come bring a car to me. And they still do. I don't even do that anymore, but they bring me the car anyway. <laughs> but life began to get better. I, I, I opened a shop, and, and, and I was successful in the shop. I, I made good money. And later on, I expanded a little bit, and I opened up a car lot, a used car lot. And I had a used car lot and a pain body shop, and I was doing pretty well for myself. I fell in love. I mean, you know, that happens immediately after you get sober. But I did. I, You know, I met this girl, and, and she was in the program, and, and uh, we got married. And my life was just the way I had always envisioned it could be, you know. I had a big home down out in Mandarin, which is a community right out of Jacksonville, had a big nice home and had a pain body shop and I was making a lot of money and I had a used car lot, it was taking that money to run, you know, I didn't make any money there, but had a beautiful wife and she had a son that, and I, because I wasn't ever able to raise my sons, I, you know, I had an opportunity here with uh, her son and, and uh, my life was great. It tells you in the literature, this too shall pass. <laughs> it does. I, 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 yeah, I'd been married, but we'd been married about five years, and, and she decided she wanted a divorce. Uh, 
Uh, you know, I've been around long enough to know that, you know, if a woman makes up her mind, you can't change it. Might as well go along with it. And so, so we got a divorce. <clears throat> and I went down to my home group and I had a long face, you know. And they said, Jimmy, cheer up. It's going to get better. I'm beginning to get into financial problems with her gone and her salary. She was making good money and her salary was gone. And I began to get into some binds and, and, and the IRS caught up with me <clears throat> and I owed some back taxes. What I had done and, and some of y'all have probably done the same thing. I'd sort of pyramided my business. You know, I really wasn't as much as I, I looked. But I was began to get into some financial problems, and the IRS set me up on five hundred dollar a month, five hundred dollar a week, on back taxes that I had to pay. And man, I went down to the group, and and I really had a long face then. And they said, "Jimmy, cheer up, it's going to get better." I knew they were right; they'd always been right. I had to get rid of the car lot. I had to sell all the cars off to pay our IRS. And they said, Jimmy, cheer up. It's going to get better. I had to let the house go. It's going to get better. I had to close the body shop. It's going to get better. I went into total bankruptcy. They said, Jimmy, it's going to get better. And one Friday night, I was sitting in an AA meeting there in my home group. And I had a heart attack. And they rushed me over to the hospital. And I stayed in the hospital for two weeks. And I got out on a Saturday morning about 10 o'clock. And they had an 11 o'clock meeting there at my home group. And I went straight to my home group. And I said, look, I don't want it to get no better. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Well, life is good, you know. I, you know, it looks sort of, it, it looks sort of, you know, it sounds sort of funny to 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 say that a heart attack was good for you, but you know, it really made me realize some things that 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 I thought that I had realized before. Yeah. One day at a time. You know, that's all we got. I remember sitting up on the sixth floor in that hospital. And watching the sun go down on the, over the St. John's River, beautiful sunsets, red and yellows, and tears would run down my cheeks because I finally understood what they were talking about. Then when they say one day at a time, because yeah. I didn't plan that, you know, I didn't make any arrangements for that. It just happened. And I realized that it could happen any time. So I have tried to live my life even a little better than I did before. You know, it's sort of morbid to say it. But there's no guarantee that we're even going to get home from this meeting. So we need to live in the way... Well, I, I'm not going on any more of that because... I get sort of choked up sometimes. I'm sorry. <clears throat> but my life has gotten better. 
I love AA. I do a lot of service work and because that is what keeps me sober. And I think that's what it's all about. You know, one drunk helping another drunk. And before I end, and I'm running out of anything to say, before I end, I'd like to thank the committee for asking me up. Because, as I said, I do enjoy talking about AA and my sobriety. I love you people. I love this program. Thank you for listening.